Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Chicago's Legal Latte, a series of podcasts brought to you by Lavelle Law Limited. Throughout this series, the attorneys from Lavelle Law will share their answers to questions about a variety of topics for individuals and small businesses. To participate in today's discussion, you can email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. And good afternoon, friends, or if you're listening to one of our downloaded episodes on your own schedule, perhaps good morning, good evening, uh, whatever it might be, regardless of the time of day or place you're listening, thanks for taking the time to spend a quarter hour with me on Chicago's Legal Latte. Uh, Jim Mitchell back with you again for our weekly conversation about another unique aspect of the law. And today what we're going to do is we're, the discussion is, is, is going to be one of those scenarios in which several different legal situations come together in a single event. And that's what helps uh, create new uh, new and interesting topics and studies for us here on the program. My guest will be Attorney Christina Regal. Uh, Christina, of course, as you know as a listener, is an attorney at Lavelle Law Limited. Uh, she often shares her insights on matters of family law and litigation. Uh, and, and this week, we're going to revisit the topic to some degree of orders of protection. We've talked about those in the past. But in this instance, we'll look at uh, how someone in an abusive relationship that may have an order granted uh, may be able to use that to, to then protect their financial condition as well. Uh, a lot going on there. Let's let's try and get right to it. First of all, Christina, thanks for being with me again today. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, Jim. So let's let's start with um, maybe a few preliminary questions to kind of set the stage. Um, one of the prerequisites for our conversation today is that uh, – uh, a couple have entered into some contract together, such as signing a lease for an apartment. Is that the, sort of the way we're going to approach this? Right. That's exactly what we're talking about, a lease for a residence. Okay. All right. And then the next assumption is that uh, that relationship has somehow gone bad and become abusive in some way, and we're going to talk about an order of protection playing a role in this. Can you give us first a quick refresher on an order of protection? Yes, an order of protection protects victims of domestic violence or sexual violence from further contact of any kind with their abuser. So when we're talking about an order of protection, what we mean is a woman has gone to court and told the court that something has happened very recently, not a long time ago, but within the last several days, where there's an emergency nature where she does not want to be contacted in any manner by the person who committed this violence against her. It's not a matter of harassing phone calls or a bad argument, a bad verbal argument that goes that that gets frightening. What what it is is a matter of threats of violence or actual violence or sexual violence occurring between the parties. When a woman gets one of those from the court, it's typically short-term in nature and that can turn into a longer order of protection that protects her from any contact whatsoever from this individual. Okay. So let's now let's kind of combine the two conditions that we've laid out here. If, if someone has entered into that residential contract agreement of some sort with another person and, and is now a victim of abuse, you know, what, what recourse do they have to get out of that lease? Uh, obviously, likely they're going to want to distance themselves from that abusive partner. Does, does an order of protection start to play into how they can maneuver in that regard? Well, yeah, that, that's exactly it. So what a typical scenario would be, and, and I should back up to say that, these, that orders of protection can be for men as well. It doesn't have to be just women. It's, it, you know, I think that most people mm-hmm. consider victims of domestic violence to be women, but it's not, that's not always the case. However, when... Uh, a person's in a dating relationship where they reside together with somebody in, a, in a, a, a residence that they do not own. 
um, oftentimes the two individuals will sign a contract or lease together for the leasing of that of that residence. An order of protection says that these people can't be in contact with each other anymore, that the abuser or the alleged abuser cannot contact in any way the victim of the abuse. That complicates matters when both parties are on the hook to pay rent to a landlord. Um, in a typical lease, everyone who resides there would sign the lease and have a portion of and, and have a liability to pay the uh, the the rent as it's due, so that um, and that liability would be joint and several. So each party would be on the hook for the whole amount of of the rent. Um, it gets complicated when one person under the law can't under under the order of the court cannot reside there. Um, so there is in fact a statute in place that provides for how these things will be um, will be determined by landlords and by the court. Yeah, and no, I, I assume that not all landlords are, you know, going to be easily persuaded to release someone from a lease. Um, and as you mentioned now, there's a statute that might help sort that out. Take us take us through the statute and what it talks about. And let's let's first look at the the residents' point of view and what the statute provides or or requires of them. Great. Well, this statute took effect. It's called the Safe Homes Act, and it took effect in 2007. And what it provides is that a, a, a victim of domestic violence or sexual violence who has an order of protection. Um, or shows that she was under he or she was under the threat of domestic violence can actually be out of liability, not be liable for the for unpaid rent during the term that he or she did not reside in the apartment. So let's say that um, you know woman A gets a order of protection against uh, man B, and they both reside together in the residence. If she moves out and she um, she decides to move in, let's say, with her sister or her mother. Um, she has to give uh, as much notice as possible that this has occurred, and then she would not actually be responsible to pay any of the rent for any time that she did not reside there. And in terms of the landlord and what is required of them, obviously it sounds like this is a fairly you know, cut-and-dried process. If they are made aware of the situation, they do they lose all, all claim then to that portion of the rent? That's right. They would actually, um, uh, they could actually go after boyfriend, in that scenario, boyfriend B or man B to um, to recover the whole amount with that joint several liability aspect, but they could not sue the woman in eviction court or small claims court to recover that rent money from her. And you had mentioned that orders of protection generally are, are short-term. They can be extended and made longer. Uh, I guess, first of all, when, when you reference that, what, what would we be normally talking about as a period for a short-term? Is that uh, a matter of a month or two, or what do they normally look like? That's a good question. Orders of protection are granted for a max. Emergency orders of protection are granted for a maximum of three weeks. Under the statute, they cannot last more than 21 days. And then they are set for a hearing, um, and that can be extended by the court um, on a per-case basis. The emergency can be extended by the court, but they are set for a hearing within 21 days. They can be reissued. They can be set out again for a hearing, assuming that you know the court grants that relief. Um, and if not, there will be a hearing within 21 days for what's called a plenary order of protection, and that uh, is not short-term in nature, and it could last up to two years, uh, barring the two 
individuals from um, being in contact with one another. And, and the reason I ask that is simply that uh, I assume that the statute prevents a, a landlord from saying, well, look, you've got an order of protection, you know, it only covers two day or two months, you've got eight months left on your lease, um, you know, you're off the hook for two, but after that, if the order of protection expires, I expect you to still continue paying? Well, yes. I mean, so so the, the, the statute does not provide that there has to be an order of protection in place. Mm, okay. um it can there can be other ways of showing that the that the victim was under threat of sexual violence or uh domestic violence but the showing would be the responsibility of that person so she would have to provide notice to the landlord and then show by you know credible uh by by credible evidence so to speak um that there was a threat you know if, if there was a um Let's say there was a criminal court case that was pending. Um, that would be sufficient. I, I, I would. I, I assume that that would be sufficient to show that there was a credible threat of domestic violence. Um, we're we're talking with Christina Regal of Lavelle Law Limited uh, today on Chicago's Legal Latte. We're, we're talking about the scenario in which someone who receives an order of protection or perhaps other circumstances uh, against another person can potentially use that uh, to be relieved of obligations in a residential lease that they have signed with that other person. And as she always does, Christina is sharing a great deal of insight and information on the topic. Um, I rely on Christina frequently to help explain matters of family law here on the podcast. If you need assistance in that area, you can find Christina's profile at lavellelaw.com. It's also a great place to read some recent articles posted by Christina and her colleagues and download some of our previous conversations from the podcast series, a uh, uh, very thorough collection available there on a number of different topics. Um, so in your role as uh, as an attorney representing uh, victims in these types of cases, Christina, tell me a little bit more about um, what might need to, to take place. You just mentioned it briefly. It doesn't necessarily have to be an order of protection, but some sort of representation that violence or abuse has taken place. Do you find that that's, uh, in most cases, um, difficult to represent in these types of situations, or does the court have certain standards that they look in and you can usually provide that information? Well, um, you know, typically I work, Jim, with people, with, with women who seek out orders of protection from the court. So mm -hmm. that's, when I, when, I, when I refer to orders of protection, that's because typically women will seek these out with, with, at the urging of the police once they report an incident of domestic or sexual violence. Um, but under the code, um, sexual violence means sexual assault, sexual abuse, stalking of an adult or minor child, and non-consensual sex of some way. Uh, domestic violence means violence against a family or household member um, within a close family member, a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, caretakers, and um, uh, former dating partners and dating partners or household members. And we've got a couple minutes left, and I think you know you've given us a broad description there that that covers a lot of area. But and I don't mean to minimize that or walk away from that. But there's a sort of a practical side to this too, in terms of the the lease contract that we've we've been discussing today, because quite frankly, if this were not in place, in addition to the personal and physical abuse that the person might have encountered, they would also be quite frankly risking their credit history and financial standing if they were held accountable for a lease that they couldn't fulfill. And, and, again, not to minimize all the other aspects, but this does at least provide some financial and personal protection in those regards as well. 
that's exactly right. And I think what, what the important part that I want to make sure I communicate today is that, um, and that and I haven't touched on yet, is that someone who is seeking out relief under this act, under the uh, Safe Homes Act, has to, has to inform their landlord within 60 days that the violence has occurred and that they want to invoke their rights under this act. And they have to inform the landlord, I, think, I believe, within three days of their moving out. So, um, you know, when these things occur, we want to see women or, or any victims of abuse, men or women alike, go to the court, use the relief of the court right away, you know, call the police right away, inform their landlord right away. We don't want to sit on our rights and sit on our hands, um, and that's an important aspect to communicate. Another thing that, just to touch on the point that you just made, um, you know, a lot of abusers, they like to control when people are, um, you know, doing things, that, when women are trying to leave them or trying to do things that they don't want to do, they they hit or threaten to to essentially stop someone from leaving their control. And um, when they're able to have a negative impact on their credit or their finances, you know, it widens the scale of the abuse. You know, not only are they going to hit them, but they're also going to hit them in the pocketbook. And that can be a very effective tool in, in terms of controlling a person. And this act, uh, you know, provides women relief from that. But I think to reinforce the point you made, and one of the things that people may miss, you know, misinterpret from time to time, is getting into the court system. If there is an uh, an active situation as you're describing, it's critical that you get in and and make the claim and get it done very, very promptly. Particularly in matters of orders of protection, because the court will wonder if it was an if it was so urgent and so scary, why didn't you act sooner? That's that's the question that is often posed to people who are. A, who are victims of domestic violence who wait and sit on their rights and sit on their hands. Um, we want to see them act quickly to show the court really how how dire the situation is. Well, um, I think that's a great point to make and uh, probably a good spot for us to wrap things up. We're going to let uh, Christina get back to her work at Lavelle Law. I do appreciate her being here today. And as usual, we've uh, we've covered a topic as well as we can in 15 minutes, but there's always more information available for you at Lavelle Law. Um, com, and of course uh, direct phone call at 847-705-7555 now next week we're going to continue on in the family law discussion Uh, I'll be joined by one of the partners at Lavelle Law, Emil Alakas and we're going to discuss the topic of alienation of affection obviously um, a critical component in perhaps dissolution of marriages. Uh, Emil will provide some information. As always, any of our more than 200 topics can be searched and downloaded at lavellelaw.com, iTunes, or here on Blog Talk Radio. So please take advantage of our library of past discussions, and uh, hopefully you'll find several of interest to you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. If you have any questions or topics for a future episode, please call Lavelle Law Limited at 847-705-7555 or email us at podcast at lavellelaw.com. 